Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Since debuting in the New York Times Magazine on August 14, 2019, The 1619 Project has ignited a debate about American history, the founding of the country, and the legacy emanating from the nation's history with chattel slavery. The project's creator and editor, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has described the project as seeking to place, quote, the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. Components of a related school curriculum have been adopted in major cities like Chicago, Washington, D.C., and Buffalo, New York. For her work on the project, Hannah Jones was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for commentary. But the project has also come in for heavy criticism from historians and economists of all political and philosophical persuasions for inaccuracies in, quote, matters of verifiable fact, unquote, in history and economics. In response to these critics, Hannah Jones just recently declared the project not a work of history, but instead a work of journalism. One of the project's most frequent critics is Phil Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. I talked with Phil Magnus about the objectives of the 1619 Project, the economic history of slavery, the project's historical errors, and why many Americans seem to have such a difficult time accepting the complicated totality of our own history. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash acton line. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Phil Magnus. Phil is a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He is the author of numerous works in economic history, taxation, economic inequality, the history of slavery, and education policy in the United States. His most recent book is The 1619 Project, A Critique. Phil Magnus, welcome to Actonline. Thank you for having me. So you recently tweeted a question out, and I think I'm going to turn the question around back to you and have you answer it. You asked, is the 1619 Project history, not history, or history and not history? So if you could lead by answering that question and then give our audience your best summation of what the 1619 Project is. Right. So um, I guess a little preface to the question is uh, this emerged from the lead editor of the 1619 Project herself, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a uh, writer for the New York Times. And basically what she did when this uh, journalistic venture was launched uh, a little under a year ago, so August 2019, uh, they presented the 1619 Project as not only a journalistic endeavor, but a supplement to classroom education, especially K through 12 education. And they were treating it uh, very specifically, you can see this in uh, the original promotional material, as a reframing of American history 
around the arrival of the first slaves in uh, Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. And this was also kind of cast as an alternative origin story to 1776, the founding of America. Uh, so it's a, an intentional recentering of history around the study of slavery. But the problem that's emerged is in the uh, almost a year since it was published, several historians uh, across the political spectrums, so not only myself, but uh, people on the left, the right, uh, the center, the far left, uh, you name it, have come in and started to scrutinize the historical content of this venture. Uh, scrutinized on a factual and interpretive basis. And in response to much of that criticism, Nicole Hannah-Jones has taken cover in the fact that it's a journalism project and not a straight up uh, exercise in scholarly history. So it's become kind of this pivot turn uh, when, uh, when the 1619 Project wants to depict itself as history, they claim to be a historical interpretation. When they're being scrutinized by historians, suddenly it becomes journalism, which uh, I guess somehow relaxes the standards of what they can do uh, and opens up to more editorializing. Uh, so when I posed that question, I was just trying to get to the root of this uh, uh the strange maneuver that seems to be coming out of the project's creators and defenders in the sense that they want it to be history when it serves them. But then when uh, uh, scrutiny is directed their way or uh, they're having a difficulty in justifying a claim of the project, they're all too happy to shed the history label and just claim it was opinion commentary and journalism. This seems to be um, an interesting pattern that exists now in media in particular. If you go back to the height of the popularity of The Daily Show, you had Jon Stewart perpetually with the, when he wanted to be taken seriously, it was clown nose off. When he wanted to not be held to account for the things that he said, it was clown nose back on. Right. So we, we see this, I think, kind of presenting itself in different forms now. Do you so to, to answer the question, is, is there any history in it? Is it entirely in your estimation, either a journalistic or perhaps a polemic exercise, or is it kind of a combination of a bunch of things? Well, I think it it's a combination of a bunch of things, and I think it's entirely fair to recognize it as that. But if you're going to offer a combination product and you're going to intentionally edit, editorialize, intentionally politicize the content of it, then it probably doesn't belong in K through 12 classrooms being presented as course material. Uh, just for the same reason, you wouldn't uh, walk into a K through 12 classroom and give the latest Paul Krugman uh, column out and say, well, this is a history. No, this is uh, this is opinion writing. It's very mm -hmm. clearly marked as opinion writing. Uh, so I think the problem starts to emerge is when uh, they, they want to to import the editorial content, but present it as if it's something at a higher level, because uh, it does draw on scholarly works. There were several scholarly contributors to the project, uh, although they, they, they don't seem to uh, uh, gravitate around the areas where it's come under the most scrutiny. That's been the the majority of that work was done either by journalists or or scholars that were writing outside of their areas of expertise. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we can accept that there are scholarly contributions, but also know that this is very much geared toward a popular audience with a clear editorial message that I think needs to be disclosed in the name of honesty. So before we dive into what you present as the critique of the 1619 Project, what, if anything, do you think the 1619 Project gets right or at least raises as a question for conversation that needs uh, needs to happen or at least should happen in the way that we talk about American history and the history of the founding of the country? 
So the project itself, I think, begins with a very admirable goal, and that is to uh, redirect our attention to slavery as a subject is not just something that, uh, that seems to emerge right before the Civil War and goes away, but a longstanding recurring theme of American history. And that's, that's both uh, the first 200 years or so of its existence prior to uh, uh, all of the events that we, we, we know is more familiar in relation to slavery, and then also the legacy since abolition. So they're, they're trying to take a, a more holistic approach to slavery from its origin point, at least in the English-speaking colonies, all the way up to today and its legacies and its fallout over the last century and a half since it was abolished. Uh, so I think that's a very worthyable uh, way of approaching slavery uh, just compared to the usual K through 12 textbooks or the uh, public discourse around it, which tends to be a very superficial and simplified version of it. Uh, but I'd say this is probably true of almost every topic in American history. We also get a simplified version of the Great Depression. We get a simplified version of World War II, of the American Revolution. Any major theme in U.S. history, unfortunately, tends to be watered down, if not even dumbed down and politicized in the way that we we talk about it in our, in our popular conversations and in our, our education system. Uh, so in that sense, I think the 1619 Project is trying to rectify and improve the, uh, the conversation. Now, whether they succeed at that goal, uh, that's a different question. That's where we can get into the criticisms, because I think they uh, very unfortunately um, discredited quite a bit of what they were trying to do by pushing too far in a political direction. I'm curious from what you said there, it, do you, before we get into the critique, do you, do you think the teaching of history in that sense is just kind of difficult because I, I, you know, hearken back to my own experience in elementary school and even in high school. In high school, when you start getting even a little more deep into history, you have more time to spend on it. Teachers can dive deeper into the subjects. I still remember getting the history of the Great Depression, for just for example, of, you know, the market collapses, the Great Depression happens, um, and then FDR's New Deal saves us. And it took a long time for me personally, reading Amity Schley's The Forgotten Man, um, even some deeper understandings of... If you had a job during the Great Depression after the collapse of the market, you were probably okay, if not, you know, mostly fine. It was people who found themselves unemployed, had really no opportunity of finding new employment. Do, do you think in that sense it's just difficult to teach history when you only have a limited time and a limited attention span to do so? Yeah, especially to get into details of history and nuances of history of anything that that uh, that breaks from just a a very superficial grand narrative. Uh, so I think that's just uh, unfortunately the way that history is taught is often very poor on any issue that we take up. So uh, uh, and that's just yeah, going into a a more detailed uh, focused history of slavery is inherently going to rub up against that type of a challenge. So. Present to us then uh, the most, uh, you know, simple version or clear version of what is what is your critique of the 1619 Project? What are the biggest errors that you think that they make? Yeah. So I break it down into areas of criticism and then also areas of credit. Uh, the two biggest criticisms that I'll focus on are the way that it handles capitalism, economics, and the economic dimensions of slavery and then also its situation of slavery in relation to the American Revolution. 
Uh, I think the first of those two is a far more substantive error, although it's probably in the in the broader debate around the 1619 Project, it's probably received secondary attention versus the American Revolution story. Uh, but basically, the, uh, the the history of capitalism in relation to slavery, the way the 1619 Project tells it, is that American capitalism uh, emerges in kind of like this origin or genealogy story in conjunction with slavery, and that slavery is responsible for the emergence of the United States as a wealthy, industrialized economic power, uh, which happens in the late 19th and early 20th century. But they're saying essentially that this is built on the back of plantation slavery, uh, that this system that existed in basically appropriating labor from people by force and under threat of, of beating them essentially, uh, is what capitalism was built upon. And the way that they present it, uh, they jump from that uh, that claimed origin story, which we can get to the history of it in a moment, uh, but to the present day. And uh, the argument is literally that American capitalism today is exceptionally brutal because it's tainted by slavery. It's uh, It has a, uh, a, a genetic origin that carries forth this sin with it, and therefore we need to rectify capitalism. We need to, to do something to, uh, to, to fix this, uh, uh, this problematic origin, to purge the problematic origin. And really in the 1619 Project's editor's mind, that means you know, adopting socialized health care, redistributing wealth, uh, all the usual litany of progressive uh, policy uh, advocacy points that are, are tied to maybe what a, a far left Democratic Party electoral agenda would look like in 2020. So uh, it, it's trying to rationalize policy preferences today on the far left by claiming that they're necessary because of the legacy of slavery. So this is, if I understand correctly, a school of thought called the new history of capitalism. Yes. Yes. So uh, new history of capitalism, it's a uh, it's an area of uh, it's a hist- historiographical mo- uh, movement is uh, probably the best way to think of it. Uh, small but very pronounced uh, and vocal group of historians emerged around the time of the financial crisis. Uh, so, so really about so we're talking about mid to late 2000s to the present when this has come into its own. And this group of historians uh, basically claim to set out to investigate the economic dimensions of slavery. Uh, there's a bit of a misnomer when they call themselves the new history, uh, new historians of capitalism. Uh, there's not really as much novelty as their title that they assign themselves would, would suggest. And this also ex- extends into some of the major works in it. So Ed Baptist has this, uh, this book that's kind of considered one of the founding components of the, uh, the subfield is called The Half Has Never Been Told. And of course, the implication there is he's telling the story that's never been told. Uh, what it really is, is this far left-wing, anti-capitalistic, ideological story that tries to uh, to, to basically reinterpret uh, the history of slavery as some sort of a, a manifestation of laissez-faire capitalism. Of, uh, of trying to interpret the uh, the instruments of slavery as what markets would do if they were left to their unfettered uh, and uncontrolled and unregulated devices. Uh, in other words, they basically enslave a segment of the population and exploit them of their labor. And uh, some people would get rich on that, and a lot of people would be in, in abject misery uh, because of it. And they tell a uh, tell this origin story in such a way that recenters. The economic history of the United States around one or two major slave-produced products, like cotton and tobacco, and really cotton because it's such the such a dominant uh, product of American slavery. 
And the idea here is that uh, cotton was such a central component to the antebellum economy that without it, uh, America basically never would have industrialized, never would have developed as an economic power. Uh, Ed Baptist in his book even goes so far as to say that cotton plantation uh, products uh, coming out of slavery were so essential to American industrialization that they were necessary to break the 10,000-year Malthusian cycle of population growth followed by starvation, population growth and starvation. So he is directly and causally crediting the cotton economy for the reason why we were able to break the Malthusian cycle. Uh, there's all sorts of problems with that as economic history, but that's the gist of his argument. And some of these other scholars like Sven Beckert at Harvard, Walter Johnson at Harvard have both uh, developed similar theories on, uh, on how cotton is the centerpiece of 19th century economic development in the United States, and that extends to the world. So that's, that's, that's basically the history of where this comes from. And you can see why they would take that as an origin story, as a genealogy, and say, okay, well, if you accept this as true, then capitalism today is tainted. Was slavery that profitable? I, I know there's um, there, that is something that's alleged that the South's economy was really built on it. I know there's some disagreement of, uh, out there on that contention. Was it, you know, was it an economic plus for the South? Right. So there's the great debate. There's the, the nuance that goes into this debate uh, becomes really complicated because economic historians have been discussing and debating this for the better part of a century. Uh, so I'll, I'll preface it with that. Uh, you can go back to the 1950s when this really gets under uh, underway in the economic literature. So um, Al Alfred Conrad and John Meyer write a famous paper in the Journal of Political Economy in the late 1950s that investigates the question, is slavery profitable? And the answer they come up with is, yes, it is to the slave owners, but there are other complications that come out of that, uh, that conclusion. They actually take data and they show that uh, typical plantations were profitable. Uh, they do make a slave owner very rich. Uh, but at the same time, what does it do to the remainder of the, uh, the Southern economy? And this is the great question people have been investigating ever since. Uh, and there's, no, there's not really a, uh, a direct answer because there are just so many angles and nuances of it. So we can't come up with a summary theory and say, because slavery was profitable, therefore capitalism succeeded. Uh, what you actually find is that that profitability was often contingent on other things. And it also had other downsides, unseen costs and trade-offs for it. So while slavery is profitable to the, uh, the slave owner, for example, it also requires a massive public sector investment in maintaining the slave system. It requires a federal government to hire slave patrols to return fugitives. It requires expenditures on the army to, uh, to build fortifications and supply them with weapons, which are necessary in the event of a slave revolt, you have to call out the army to put down the slave revolt, which happened a few times in, uh, in various Southern states before the Civil War. Uh, but really, that's, that's like a, a, a preemptive expenditure too. So uh, uh, it's, it's not so much that you're spending on the army for the slave revolt itself, you're spending on the army to make sure there's a presence there to dissuade any future slave revolt. And if you start looking at some of the records of, uh, you know, how many fortifications were built in southern cities prior to the Civil War, this is one of the largest budget items on the entire federal government's budget. Uh, so you see things like that. There's censorship of the mails through the post office to prevent abolitionist literature from being sent into uh, slave-owning territories. Uh, just a, a whole list of things that governments do that are 
essentially political aid to the slave system. It's like a rent-seeking regime where slave owners have captured the mechanisms of the government and used them to prop up slavery. So the next complication to our answer is, yes, slavery is profitable, but one of the reasons it's profitable is because it's being subsidized, because it's getting support from the public sector. Uh, so, so you throw that question in there. Then, then there's also uh, other complications. We, we uh, are weighing its profitability, but profitability does not necessarily mean efficiency. And we can ask the question, is slavery economically efficient? Well, there are further complications that come from uh, the economics, not only of the subsidy, not only of the public expenditure, but uh, also the alternatives of what happened in the South prior to the Civil War. Uh, very famously, and we, we learned this through the Civil War itself, the South lags dramatically in industrialization behind the rest of the country. Uh, you know, you can look at railroad miles, uh, relative uh, railroad miles in the Southern states relative to the Northern states. It's not even a comparison. You have two to three times as many railroad miles uh, that are, are being built in the free states as, as there are in the slave states. There are very few industrial centers in the South. Um, it's, it's basically a one or two product economy with uh, with a little bit of small manufacturing taking place, uh, but it's on a case-by-case uh, a, a -case basis. It's very narrow, very isolated. Uh, basically, Richmond, Virginia is about the only city that even has a, a hint of manufacturing uh, base growing in it. Uh, prior to the Civil War. Uh, that's why they want the Confederacy wants Virginia to join them as they see that as a, a, a crucial component of, uh, of their economy. But what this means is uh, there's probably something going on where, where the, uh, the path dependency of building an entire economy around slavery and cotton production and other slave-produced crops uh, actually keeps out and crowds out and prevents an alternative industrial base from emerging in that region of the country. And prior to the Civil War, you have uh, mounds of abolitionist literature that's looking at this. There are abolitionists that tour the South and they all write their travelogues and their diaries. And what they keep coming back to is the same point is that they're shocked at how underdeveloped and underindustrialized this region is. And they're also shocked because they see inefficiency in the form of land is misutilized uh, because it's been uh, basically redirected to slave uh, production on the plantation system, which alters uh, the economic dynamics of what else you can grow. So there's, an, there's a whole, I mean, if you think back to Frederick Bastiat, the seen versus the unseen, mm -hmm. there's a whole unseen story attached to slavery, which becomes very, very difficult to calculate like a dollar amount of what is unseen because it never happens, but we do know that it's there. And the gist of this means is that slavery could be economically profitable, but subsidized, but also probably economically inefficient if you bring into consideration all these other factors, the unseen factors. And then, uh, and just to summarize all that, to, to, to tie it together of what it, uh, what it implies for the antebellum economy is that, uh, that slavery is great for the slave owners that are getting rich off of it, but it's probably economically depressing for everyone else, including the slaves themselves that are, are in abject poverty and, uh, and, and feeling the, 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 the yoke of this brutal regime, uh, on their own personhood. So if you measure that into the economy, I mean, uh, uh, you're talking in some states up to half of the population is enslaved. Uh, you can't really say that this is a wealthy region just because the non-enslaved and only the elite of the non-enslaved are doing well. Let's move off the economic dimension to 
the moral dimension and what I think is also then the historical dimension, which often trumps any of the conversation that we just had on the actual underlying economics of slavery that we can't even we're not permitted to think about it in these terms because slavery is this unique evil and it is morally abhorrent. Um, and I think that in my light is a major reason for this trying to recenter the narrative of the founding of the country around 1619, which also, if I understand correctly, is a bit of a literary project as well, because if I understand correctly, you can point to the arrival of slaves or at least indentured servants prior to that in the Americas. So picking 1619 is a bit arbitrary and literary to make it you know, come out in the year 2019 and have it coincide like that. Um, you, you had – I wonder if you could comment on this. So uh, Senator Tom Cotton – said perhaps not the best phrasing recently, that slavery was a, a necessary evil with regard to the founding of the country. Um, I'm curious if you, one, what you think of his characterization there, uh, just from a historical perspective. And you know, do, do both sides do a bad job? And I don't even know if both sides is accurate here. But do many people do a poor job in either wanting to overfocus on slavery's role in the founding of the country, or to just kind of want to brush it aside and give it the superficial treatment? Because it's a very difficult conversation for a lot of people to have. Right, right. Yeah, so I guess I can start on the Tom Cotton comment. Uh, yeah, every, everyone heard this quoted, and he, and he he uses the phrase "necessary evil," uh, which actually sounds uh, pretty awful in isolation. It was inarticulately worded, and I think that's probably the biggest problem here. But on the other side, uh, the critics that seized and jumped all over this were almost intentionally uncharitable, I'd argue. Uh, so what is Cotton talking about uh, when he says necessary evil? Well, they interpret it as he was saying slavery itself was a necessary evil to uh, to build the country. And what he seemed to be getting at, at least in the context, uh, rather was a reference to the bargain that struck at the founding, uh, struck at the Constitutional Convention in 1789. Uh, where in the northern states accepted the political alliance with the southern states as that being the necessary evil. In other words, they tolerated a political union with slave-owning states, knowing that in order to both first win and then secure the permanence of our independence, we needed all 13 states together. We couldn't go it alone and have uh, a New England confederation and a southern confederation. Uh, in other words, because they're going to be fighting European world powers that had designs on the North American continent, and in order to pull this off, uh, the unity had to be prioritized over the question of whether we make a union with slave owners. Uh, so the necessity there, I think, is really a reference to uh, the political compromise that had to be made to keep the southern states in the union with the northern states and therefore win the war and therefore secure and establish a new country's independence. Not, uh, it's not a, not saying that necessary that slavery was something that was necessary for us to accept itself. Uh, unfortunately, I think Cotton was very inarticulate in the way that he phrased that, and his uh, his critics are being intentionally uncharitable in the way that they're uh, uh, they're seizing on. Uh, what is that most an inarticulate phrasing uh, for something that uh, is really not all that controversial of a historical point. Uh, people that study slavery 
openly admit and acknowledge is well documented from the Constitutional Convention that Northerners who were opposed to this institution kind of uh, pinched their nose and said, OK, we need a political union now. We'll deal with this down the line. Uh, that's abundant in their writings. As to the broader question of dealing with slavery's role in the American Revolution, part of the reason why I think it's such a, a difficult subject is not because it taints the American Revolution, but because slavery cross-cuts the, the, the revolution itself. It's something that affects both the loyalist and the, uh, uh, the, the colonialist, the, the, the revolutionary sides. Uh, there are slave owners on both sides. There are anti-slavery men on both sides. Uh, and the broader question you need to ask is not if slavery is aligned with one side or the other. That's where the 1619 Project, I think, goes really wrong on, on a point of historical fact. They, they tend to – they try to depict the British side as being aligned with abolition and the, uh, uh, the colonists, the, uh, the revolutionaries, as being as, – as acting to defend themselves against the British threat of abolition from abroad, which is not the case at all. Uh, what you see when you start looking in, into the evidence behind that is that Nicole Hannah-Jones has badly misinterpreted uh, several points of historical evidence as um, anti-slavery movements when what they're really doing is a cross-cutting of British politics and American politics at that time. So uh, the, the, the one that her critics seized upon is uh, in 1775, the British colonial governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, issues a proclamation uh, to put down the rebels. So they haven't declared independence yet, but there are armed uprisings. There's already uh, a move toward independence in the state, or at least a show of arms to force reform. And what Dunmore does is he calls out a militia, and he offers freedom to any slave that joins that militia. Uh, try to It's basically an attempt not so much to instigate abolition, but to instigate a slave revolt against the rebels, the colonists. In the same proclamation, and the 1619 Project does not acknowledge this, he has another clause that exempts loyalist slave owners from being able to uh, – uh, being eligible to this. So if, if you were a slave of a loyalist slave owner, you could not get your freedom by offering to fight. It was only if you were a rebel slave owner that you could get your freedom. Uh, so already there, there's a, a caveat that's completely changed uh, the story of her interpretation. We also find that Lord Dunmore himself is uh, is actually a pretty nasty character when it comes to his own personal relationship with slavery. He's a colonial figure in the British government for decades, moves around to other colonies after the United States. He goes to the Bahamas where he proceeds uh, to uh, basically rule over a, a brutal slave regime. Uh, he uses the government of the Bahamas to appropriate slave labor to build fortifications across the island and is regarded as, as one of the most uh, brutal and abusive governors in the history of the Bahamas uh, as a result of that. So it's not like this guy is an abolitionist trying to threaten the American slave system and therefore provoking a revolt. That's the story the 1619 Project tells. Really what's going on is slavery is being weaponized by both sides of the uh, uh, the independence debate uh, to their own purposes and needs. And uh, what you see is also on the, uh, uh, in the fallout of the revolution. This is another point that's not uh, really acknowledged very much in the 1619 Project is independence itself basically frees the northern colonies to create their own new state governments. And what's one of the first acts that – uh, most of those state governments do. Uh, by 1799, every state north of Pennsylvania, with the exception of New Jersey, has 
instituted either immediate or gradual abolition through its new state constitutions, through its new state legislatures, in some cases through court cases. So uh, it starts in, uh, in Massachusetts, I think it's in 1783, uh, Pennsylvania in 1780, when they adopt their new constitution, they, uh, they put in measures in place to allow for gradual abolition of slavery. Vermont, when it joins the union, comes in under an anti-slavery constitution. New Hampshire follows, uh, New York follows, uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, the whole northeastern United States. Uh, basically by the end of the century, is uh, either enacting or well on its way to enacting an abolition of slavery. They also extend this to the Northwest Territories, which is the modern-day Midwest. When they admit them into the, into the uh, states, they, they do so under an ordinance that prohibits the uh, spread of slavery there. Uh, so you have to ask the counterfactual question on this. Would this have happened under British rule? Uh, and the, and one of the one of the implications is probably not because it would have required uh, a different political process uh, to carry it out. So this has opened up by the revolution itself a chance to abolish slavery in parts of the country where it previously existed. Uh, so that's that's as much a part of the story as you get on the other side. This is why I say slavery cross cuts the entire revolution. Other than saying it's complicated. Uh, why do you think we seem to struggle so much with wrapping our heads around our own country's history? So you have uh, efforts like these in the 1619 Project. You could also point, I think, to Howard Zinn um, and his very influential history book, where he is quite honest in the introduction to that, that I'm telling the story of America from the point of view of everybody who has been oppressed and beaten down and subjugated. And from my perspective, that is a story that is worth telling, um, but it is certainly not the entire story. Uh, and perhaps I'm being a, a little too optimistic in saying that, in my view, one of the stories we need to tell ourselves about slavery is not only that it is a moral stain on the history of the country, but that is what what is unique about America's experience with it is that we fought a war to get rid of it and that it was such a source of tension. So why, why, or I think there's even some fundamental misunderstandings of basic history and the three-fifths clause of the Constitution, which is often pointed to as a, you know, well, they thought slaves were only three-fifths of a human being, whereas it was a compromise to reduce the political power of the slaveholding states. Um, is it just a, you know, go back to a question I might have asked previously, do we just have a hard time teaching history or getting people to understand history? Or is there just a lot of moral baggage for people to really be able to uh, kind of wrap their heads and their hearts around in order to come to a reasonable understanding of the history of the nation? Yeah, so it's a difficult and inherently morally fraught subject matter. I mean, there are few other subjects that are more uh, severe in their moral baggage in all of American history and, and really in many aspects of world history. I mean, it's in the same territory as like discussing the Holocaust. Uh, you are talking about terrible human tragedy. You are talking about oppression. You are, are talking about injustices and injustices that were carried out by the state and carried out under state sanction. Uh, so that automatically is going to make any involvement with it a very difficult subject to uh, to navigate and to navigate with any complexity, to navigate with the necessary nuance to understand what was going on here. And that includes not only asking the question of what was right and wrong, that's the, that's the surface level question, 
but also asking the question, how do people that knew they were doing wrong reconcile that with uh, uh, with the moral strain that it imposed upon them? Or how did people that uh, that knew wrong was occurring in another part of the nation uh, attempt to do something to alleviate it to end it? So the abolition story there. Uh, these are, are are much more complex mechanisms than just simply uh, making a bold uh, declaration that slavery is wrong and and therefore we can superficially. Uh, just cast it as a black and white morality tale and move on as a, uh, a historical subject. So adding the complexity is going to be very, very difficult. The new layer that gets added on, and I think this is a, a problem of both someone like Howard Zinn and the 1619 Project, is they project an air of presentism onto the past. And that presentism is 20, late 20th or early 21st century political progressivism, political leftism, uh, how they want to see the nation today. Uh, in other words, they see slavery not as only a story to tell of the past with its complexities, which they, uh, you know, I think in, in terms of detail, uh, both of those subjects often fail at capturing the full complexity of the institution. But uh, they also have an undercurrent of an ideological project. Uh, so it's not just trying to elevate our understanding of slavery in the past. It's elevating our understanding of slavery and oppression and wrongs in the past so we can do proactive, progressive political change in the present day that is supposed to rectify that, whether it's uh, historically valid in its lineage or not. And again, you know, going back to the genealogy question, especially around capitalism, I argue that it has a very false genealogy uh, attached to it for that specific reason. The, the presentism is an interesting point. I'm reminded of a comment from the Princeton professor, Robert George, who had said he had asked his class, you know, if you were living in the slave owning South at the time, do you think you would have at minimum gone along to get along or would you have been a voice for abolition? And sure enough, everyone in his class was as certain that they would have been a voice for abolition, which, you know, we all want to think the best of ourselves. So it's understandable that uh, that answer would come. But it's also just statistically, if not uh, just kind of simply and obviously unlikely that every single person in that circumstance would have been the great moral abolitionist crusader and accepted the social uh, and, and the kinds of social sanctions that would have come on you if you would have been a voice like that at the time. Yeah, so it's history through hindsight. And you can make the same observation as something like the civil rights movement, which is in the lifetime of many of our parents and grandparents. Uh, we are not far removed from the civil rights era. Compare the uh, the Gallup opinion polls of, say, like Martin Luther King's movement in the early 1960s uh, versus where if you were to ask those same questions today, you ask them today, you get something like 90 percent approval ratings. Uh, but if you go back, then you find uh, just a generation or two ago that uh, you have a huge political divide. And it's very easy from the present to say, oh, yeah, if I had lived in 1965, I would be standing on the bridge in Selma, Alabama to fight for uh, for voting rights. That's very easy to say today, but if you lived in 1965, no, I, I guarantee it just by the, uh, uh, the political spread in the country that uh, there would be a lot of people that were on the wrong side of that issue. That uh, today, they, they, it's easy to claim that they would have uh, acted in the right uh, and acted in a morally appropriate way. But we just know from the, uh, uh, the, the historical unfolding of the events as they occurred uh, that that's not a realistic projection onto the past. 
Phil, do you know anything about the rate of adoption of the 1619 Project curriculum into schools? How widespread is this? Yeah, so there, there's no uh, like national accounting of statistics. What we do see is that specific cities and county school districts have ordered its adoption and, and did so very early on. This was a, uh, um, a conscious marketing effort by the New York Times, and they paired with the Pulitzer Center to do this. It was launched almost the same day as the project itself back in uh, August 2019. They had a, a ready marked up curriculum that they were handing out to school teachers that said, here's how you use this in your classroom. Uh, this isn't a, an organic growth out of the 1619 project. It was a component of it from the beginning. We do know that uh, I think Buffalo, New York was one of the first uh, uh, full school districts to order its implementation. We've seen similar stuff coming out of Los Angeles and Chicago, some major cities, It's uh, uh, which is, have a, has a very large school population. Uh, there, ha there has been talk in official channels and legislatures uh, to either require or incentivize or somehow fund and distribute the inclusion of the 1619 project as a K through 12 public education system. And every time this, this happens, you have uh, the New York Times and the Cole Hannah Jones, they're cheering it on. They're very much in favor of using uh, the political power of the state to, uh, uh, to give official sanction to this project, which is kind of interesting because you juxtapose it against Tom Cotton's comments, which were in the context he's proposing a bill uh, that I believe strips funding from school districts, strips federal funding from school districts that implement the 1619 project. Uh, which I, I'm actually very hesitant to go down that route because I, I don't think government should be involved in setting curriculum. Uh, this is something that should be left to the teacher in the classroom, and it's going to vary on the on, on the uh, the circumstance and the situation. And uh, you know, just operating from that principle, I, I'm very uh, leery of federal edicts of what to teach, just as I'm leery of uh, of local school school board edicts of what to teach. And yet here you have. Nicole Hannah-Jones is attacking Tom Cotton for trying to regulate from the federal level, yet she's fully in favor of regulating from the state and local level in favor of her project uh, the same way. So uh, uh, this is, there's kind of a hypocrisy on both ends, and, and vice versa would apply to Tom Cotton. Uh, the politicization of K-12 through education whether it's the 1619 projects or the previous hundred years of the textbook adoption process in every state, and whether it's a, a blue state, red state, conservative, liberal state, we know from thousands of examples that textbook politics are a dumpster fire. They're basically uh, just whatever political party happens to be in power trying to spin the past to support its current day narrative. Uh, and I really see uh, one of the, the more unfortunate factors of the 1619 Project politics and trying to insert it into the classroom as they're just continuing that, uh, that um, old tradition of uh, politicizing textbooks that we've seen play out with, uh, with very poor results uh, numerous times over, uh, whether in a conservative or a, uh, a progressive left-leaning direction. What do you think the impact of the 1619 project will be in 2029, 2039, 2049? Uh, do you think it is going to have a significant influence on the way that we view history in the American founding? Or do you think that this is more of a subject of our current polarized moment in American life and is likely to fade in its significance and importance? 
Yeah. Well, I think uh, a big part of that question is how, how long does the current polarized moment persist? Uh, what I do see is the 1619 project as being both a manifestation of that polarization and a contributing uh, component to its continuation. Um, I think th this is one of the tragedies of the way that the 1619 projects roll out and really its subsequent response from Nicoleana Jones and the Times uh, uh, have operated. What they've done is they've unfortunately cast a political ideological shadow over the good parts of the project over the questions that it asked about uh, how do we take a more nuanced and complex and holistic view of slavery across a broader swath of American history? That's a good question to ask, but they've, uh, they've thrown ideology on top of it. And not only that, they've doubled down, tripled down, really dug in their heels on even the slightest pushback of clear, unambiguous historical errors in the project. And what that means is what could have been a much more ecumenical uh, discussion of slavery has turned into a, uh, a signal of which political tribe you're on in the polarized moment. What does that mean? Well, as long as our electoral politics remain polarized, this is just going to be another talking point in that same type of debate. In the long run, if you're talking, you know, 50 or 100 years out from now, how is the 1619 project going to be assessed? Um uh, I'm fairly confident that, that that scholarly opinion in the long run does tend to revert on historical matters to evidence. It's, uh, I mean, historians in their best moments are constantly interrogating the past and interrogating sources of the past, revisiting sources to see if they hold up, uh, discovering new sources that were maybe missed uh, by previous scholars, and that changes our interpretation of events. It helps them to evolve. Uh, it puts them on a firmer footing moving down the line. The 1619 Project itself, I think, is very vulnerable because it misused sources, and it inserted claims that were not in evidence, inserted claims that it could not support, and now, after the fact, the Times has, uh, has been very, very reluctant, almost incorrigible in correcting errors that have been pointed out. And what this means is, may, okay, so maybe in the short run, they can maintain that illusion, they can maintain that line, but years, if not decades from now, it's not going to be a difficult task for a historian to look at this material and observe very clearly where they missed the mark, or they misrepresented something, or they left out and omitted a significant portion of the fact and got the story wrong. Phil Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research and author of The 1619 Project, A Critique. Thank you so much, Phil, for joining us on Act in Line. Oh, thank you for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Eric Cohn.